0: Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. Thank you for joining us on our show. We normally tackle some pretty tough topics, and I think today is not as tough, but um, more interesting. Um, and excuse me for the the music bed there that doesn't seem to be going away. I always joke uh, that no one listens to my show for the technical expertise, and apparently that, that tradition is continuing. Um, I have with me today Dr. Uh, vale Wright, and Sam Lustgarten. Now, Dr. Wright, please, I'm going to let you give us your credentials, but I believe that you you are with the American Psychological Association, and I believe your title is Director, Research, and Special Projects. Am I correct with that? That's correct. Okay, great. What does a Director of Research and Special Projects do for the American Psychological Association?
1: Well that's an excellent question. Uh and I want to thank you for having me on your show today. Uh part of what our role here is at APA is to really help translate research into practice. So helping uh professional psychologists um who work generally in healthcare understand how they can um use the research that's out there that make them better practitioners, understanding the different um uh, governmental and state-level laws and how those get translated into their practice, too.
0: And, uh, Dr. Vail, uh, is it all right if I call you uh, Vail? Uh, Dr. Vail, I'm sorry. Dr. Wright, is it okay if I call you Vail or would you prefer Dr. Wright? Vail is fine. Okay, terrific. And, Sam, is it okay if I call you Sam? Of course. Okay, great. Uh, Samuel Lustgarten is a student at the University of Iowa. He is a uh, in the clinical psychology Ph.D. program, and the reason that I have both of these people on my show today is that I, as some of my listeners know, am currently working on my dissertation for my Ph.D. in psychology, and I have been seeing all sorts of information, not only in the popular literature, but also in the professional literature for psychologists. There was an article in April on Monitoring Psychology about online psychology, online therapy. And I must admit, Vale and Sam, I was taken aback by that, because I thought so much of our communication, which is, of course, so important if you're talking therapy, isn't about the words. It's about how they're said, our body language, you know, the context in which they're said. I don't understand how online therapy can really work. And you were talking about the research, Vail. When we get past that question, I'm going to ask you about some of the research on online therapy. It's pretty new. So let's start with you, Vale. What is online therapy? What is all this talk and, and uh, publicity about for online
1: therapy? Yeah, you've, you've hit on a really important topic, which is what is online therapy? And part of what makes this a complicated and nuanced topic is that online therapy can mean a lot of different things. Uh, you really have to think of it on a spectrum. So at one end of the spectrum, online therapy could mean uh, video teleconferencing with uh, a patient that you've already had an established relationship with. And we have a lot of research that shows that video conferencing using things like Skype uh, are effective and very similar to if you were in the face-to-face experience together in an office. Um, we also have on that end of the spectrum pretty good data that shows that self-guided CPT online programs with some contact with the therapist work well. But then you have to go to the totally other end of the spectrum uh, of online therapy, and what you see are maybe these standalone apps about meditation or standalone apps about thoughts or text therapy. And we don't have data to really speak to these as standalone treatments of whether or not they're effective.
0: Well, I suspect both of you are younger than me, and I have to say that I, I, I don't think I show my age in a lot of things, but I do when it comes to texting and online things, because I really want to hear a person's voice. I want to hear their tone. I want to hear their emotion. Even when I'm calling about a bill or something, I don't want to just shoot out an email. Once I've heard the voice, once I get that baseline established, then I'm fine with following up with online and, and non-personal communication. When I'm thinking of therapy, though, I'm thinking, how can that be? Sam, you wrote an article uh, or a, a letter to the editor for the Monitor talking about your concerns about online therapy. Are your concerns similar to mine? Because certainly you're uh, a younger generation. And I would think that you are more familiar and more comfortable with the whole texting and you know and, and online stuff than I am. Is are my assumptions correct? What are your concerns?
2: Well, I think it's fair to say that I do have some concerns. Um, you know, Heather, I, I talk to a lot of people about technology these days, from trainees and doctoral programs to practitioners to training programs to university counseling services, and universally, I hear this, I, I, I want to call it out, this ageism, this assumption that Millennials like me might know something more than you. Um, and there's this really <laughs> <Don't> interesting... <laughs> you're, you're popping <laughs> well, my bubble here, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we are. We're, you know, we're using technology to create this podcast. So I think that's pretty neat too. But you know, when I think about the concerns around technology, I think this is a universal problem and it spans age groups and it spans training programs. And what I'm getting at is the idea that we have so little hands-on applied training as we go through these programs. And what ends up happening is we enter the workforce as practitioners, and we have to rely on, hey, can I catch a continuing ed on this? Can I maybe attend a workshop someday? But it all becomes this volitional and uh, task that you really have to seek out yourself. And for me, there's that fundamental concern about that, thinking, "Wow, are we providing these basic competency skills for today's need?"
0: Okay, so your concern is more about our therapists actually being trained to use these effectively?
2: It, it's, it's not just effectively. I think what you know what Vail or Dr. Wright said quite eloquently and what, what I have found in my own looks at re- my own look at research is that Technology is efficacious and and that the analogs, when we go from like paper-based hard copied assessments of people's intelligence to more digital forms like Pearson's, um, we notice that there are similar uh, results. It's not like we're using this totally different skill set. but I think my concerns more broadly focus on our ethics and specifically, privacy and confidentiality issues whenever we mm. interact with technology.
0: Yeah, and those are good concerns. Um, I want to address those a little bit later, uh, you know, privacy and, and um, you know, I mean, that's a huge problem that I think a lot of people minimize. I don't, I don't think there are a lot of people mm. who actually appreciate how, Little privacy we have at all. I I, I always say I, I take comfort in the fact that my life is so uninteresting that no one cares to hack into my information. Uh, because if I were more interesting, it would be an, it's an open book out there. It really is. Anytime mm. you have opened yourself up to the internet, you're an open book. Even uh, if somebody, I mean, people don't have to be particularly uh, adroit in order to access information. So they just have to have the appropriate motivation. So, Veil, um, when you're talking about online therapy, we're talking more about the hands-on stuff than what uh, Sam was just mentioning. I'd like to go back to that a little bit. You mentioned that uh, the first example that you gave was online therapy, which would be kind of like Skyping or video therapy with an established patient. I could see that. That doesn't sound like a uh, a particularly risky or difficult thing to me, um, especially for remote areas, that sounds like it would be actually really helpful. Um, I know myself right now having some health issues. I'm I'm going, wow, you know, it's a little harder for me to get out. Uh, it would be really great if I had, say, my weekly appointment with a, a therapist and we could just Skype that instead of my having to drag into the car and go down and meet her. Um, but that's a different from some of the online therapies that I've seen. I'm referring to the um, article in Monitor uh, on psychology that was in uh, February. I mistakenly said it was April. Sam's response was published in April. But there were six different popular online therapy services that were listed in the Monitor. And I tried contacting all of them. And two of them had phone numbers, but the phone numbers were not monitored. The rest had no actual verbal way of contacting anyone or speaking with anyone. The others had um, uh, emails that you could send or messages that you could send. Um, I did send messages, and I have not received any response from any of them. I did get, uh, on the two that had phone numbers, I left verbal messages, and I actually did get a verbal response, a phone call back from one of them. That doesn't sound terrifically responsive to me. Is that what um, the APA is seeing in, uh, or is that what you personally might be seeing with some of these online therapy services, Dale?
1: Yeah, I think one of the real challenges is, again, the sense that uh, it's hard to define what online therapy is and it can mean so many different things. We have little to no research support for these standalone online treatments such as those, I think, that you're talking about that are developed by health IT companies that you would find if you were to just, say, Google online therapy. And so I think that's something that's really important for consumers to be aware of. And again, like you said, even when you read the fine print of these online platforms, it can be really hard to ascertain the training, education, and the licensure of the provider on the other end of the technology. So that also potentially puts consumers at risk. And So I think you're right that, that your experience is not unsimilar to some of the things that we have seen.
0: Okay. And yet, does the APA take a stance on this? I mean, I'm um, assuming that the article was written from an infor- information standpoint. Um, but I didn't see anybody in that article actually really bashing this or having major expressing major concerns about this. Is it just kind of viewed as a well, this is the way of the future and we have to figure out how we're we're going to deal with it or are there serious concerns or does it is it just an individual thing?
1: So, APA doesn't have an official position on text therapy as a standalone modality of treatment, but we do put a lot of resources towards educating both consumers and psychologists about the practice of telepsychology. So, for example, we have uh, guidelines on the use of uh, telepsychology, um, recommending that psychologists meet new patients for a face-to-face meeting first before delivering services via technology. Um, And we do continue to respond to, I mean, this is a hot topic, like you said, we get media requests on online therapy all the time, and it, and um, so we try really hard to get Uh, others to understand what the research says and what the research doesn't say, Um, and to really be thinking about not just uh, effectiveness, which is important, but also safety. And that does refer back to what we were talking about, the confidentiality and the security of our data and the privacy and whether or not things are HIPAA compliant. Um, And again, this idea of licensure and consumer protection, because um, if you don't know who's on the other end of this online platform, um, and you don't know if they're licensed in the state that you're in, what kind of training and education they have, then you also have no recourse if something goes wrong.
0: Well, that brings up a great point. And, and Sam, you were talking about the whole privacy issue, but what about the um, and the ethics issue? What about, uh, you know, if my state doesn't license this particular therapist, but that therapist is working out of a different state with perhaps different um, requirements for licensure, does that make a difference if I'm calling her from my state? Uh, how right. do you see
2: that? Sound? Yeah. Well, I want to first acknowledge that um, Vale and, and I think anybody that's working at the APA has done really great work to publish guidelines that are um, trying to advance the field and give us insight about how to interact with these technologies in a uh, more safely and secure way. I want to start with that. But I also want to break down a couple of different pieces there. First, Yeah, there's that piece about licensure. So as psychologists, we'll have uh, state-based licensure, but there are things like PSYPACT, which is a a uh, regional-based effort to to allow practitioners to practice, at least as I understand it, temporarily across state borders. And it's important to consider that federal-based practitioners like those at VAs are already exempt from state-based licensure when it comes to this uh, cross-state practice of televideo or telepsychology. Um, but, you know, there are some things that I think about for individual practitioners or group, groups that are thinking about using technologies like Skype. There are components like HIPAA or high-tech, the, the real regulations and laws of the land about what kinds of technology we can use and how do we interact with it. And another big thing, and I haven't really seen this yet, is none of these tele- video teleconferencing software that I've interacted with that practitioners are talking about using acknowledge the location with which a patient or client is at. And so if you think yeah. about it, now we're contending with different borders, and but just simply thinking about it, let's say they're within the state. Well, we have no ability as practitioners to ensure that they are actually within the state if we are engaged in a distance-based therapy. And, and even more so, thinking about suicidality or harm to others. How do we take action? You know, we can't just call 911 if somebody's at a distance and we don't know where they are
0: yeah exactly. Um, so that's an ethical point uh, that you're bringing up, Sam. and Vale is has the APA looked at that particular issue?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I Sam brings up some really great points. Um, and again, so I think part of the issue for from a psychologist's point of view is that and from the consumer point of view is that the technology is really outpacing the research and the regulations. So it's almost like we can't keep up at this point, and new and new things are coming out all the time. Um, but you know how you know knowing how, whatever the online platform you're using, how you might handle emergencies or crises are really important. Um, the other thing we haven't really touched on um, is is the insurance coverage issue. So oftentimes, with these types of modalities. Um, around telepsychology is that uh, licensure regulations and insurance coverage continues to lag behind the real-world practice. So that's just, you know, another, another aspect or another challenge, I think, that, that comes when we talk about how do we incorporate technology into the therapy work that we're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and we can't ignore the bottom line. I mean, if there wasn't money to be made, um, these companies wouldn't exist, and I'm not saying that as any kind of damning statement. We all exist to pay our bills. We all want to make a profit. I want to make a profit, don't you? I mean, you know, mm. I, I'm, just because these companies charge fees um, and uh, make a profit doesn't make mean that they're evil incarnate. It it just means that that is a factor that we're looking at. Again, looking at the six companies that were listed in the um, article in the Monitor, some of these fees are really low and i'm thinking wow i mean if i were low income if i really wanted some help and i saw that i could get it for 35 dollars an hour um through uh, one of these online things i would be tempted to try it but again the research veil that you're talking about you said that there is research for the online therapy where there's perhaps Skyping with an existing patient, is there any research whatsoever for things like teleconferencing or asynchronous messaging um, video conferencing um, anything like that is there any research out there at this point?
1: So there's absolutely research for teleconferencing and video conferencing again with um, through an established relationship and there's also research. Um, showing some decent results for sort of self-directed, manualized computer programs with some level of contact with the provider, particularly in a step-down approach. So let's say, for example, I've been working with a patient for a while or client, um, and uh, now we can start tapering off of maybe weekly sessions, and so uh, we start incorporating a computer-based program to help um, just keep somebody kind of in the loop and, and accountable for for the things that they're working on changing, um, but maybe we don't see on a weekly basis. But like I mentioned before, there's no data that supports these standalone online treatments like the ones that you see online, like that you would Google or that show up for me in like my Facebook feeds um, all the time. Um, so this again, the asynchronous texting, the or this the just traditional texting-type therapy with a with a provider that you've never met before. Um, there isn't a lot of research that supports either of those as stand-alone. We know that in the process of of an ongoing therapy relationship, if I as a therapist use text to help remind my my client to fill out their homework for that week or um, to check in on their mood, that that seems to work as an adjunct to face-to-face therapy. So that's we have some research there. Um, what I often see is that these online therapy websites will sh- will uh, highlight research that is similar to stuff they're doing, but not actually what they're doing. So what we're really not seeing is that these tech companies are going out and, and really doing research on the product that they're offering. That's what we're really missing still.
0: Yeah. Well, and is the research that private companies doing, is that still as reliable uh, as... Academic research?
1: Well, ideally what we would want is for them to do independent research. So they would they would partner with, say, a university or a well-established research group that would come in and independently um, assess the product that they're offering. So you're right. You wouldn't want just the, the, the IT company itself to be doing it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Sam, what about the privacy issue? Um, uh, anytime we put ourselves out there online in any way, shape, or form – Somebody can track us down, or there's a record, or how how does the privacy issue affect um, record keeping? How does it affect the individual, and how does it help, fit with government regulations like HIPAA, which is the Health Information Privacy Act?
2: Sure. Um, so there are a few different aspects there that I, I think I can answer, but the biggest one that stands out to me is the concept of retention, right? So whenever we're writing records in an electronic medical record, um, whenever we're text messaging, emailing,
1: um,
2: teleconferencing, we're creating these little digital breadcrumbs and records along the way. And one question that I've had for a long time now as I look into this work and try to, to write scholarly articles on this is the idea of retention of records. You know, There's a piece in the ethical uh, within our ethics code about uh, maintenance and retention of records, and there are specifically guidelines. I think it's the record-keeping guidelines that APA have, has published that talk about how long should you keep records, things like that. But when we enter this digital environment, it's unclear what happens to a file when we delete it. You know, for instance, if I delete an email off of Gmail or my Google Mail, does it disappear forever? Well, the first step is it moves into the trash can, right? And then if I empty that trash can, I can no longer see it. But is it gone forever? Am I certain about that? Can I ensure that? Well, let's say it's just on Google. I I don't have any email on my own computer, but it's on their website. That website is not showing me the email anymore, but is it really gone? And we don't have privacy policies or terms and conditions that ensure, as practitioners, that that data is really deleted. They are designed in ways to um, allow them to continue to study data that is created for marketing purposes and to get to know you better as a consumer, and so that kind of contradicts with our own desire for, for our clients' privacy.
0: So let me get this straight. So what you're saying is, and I'm, I'm, I've heard this before, this isn't news to me, but I want to make sure that the audience understands. There's a private company, let's call them Gmail, and our emails go back and forth through them, which means that there is this other entity that what we send through our Gmail accounts doesn't I, I email you, Sam? And it's not just Heather and Sam who have that information. It is this Gmail that has that information, and they can in fact retain that whether you and I hit delete or not.
2: That's potentially I? correct. Yeah, that's okay. I, and I say that hesitantly in sort of a, a, a lawyer style. We don't know. <laughs> and there's no public information on it. So I can't, you know, as any good sort of critical scientist practitioner, I can't say no or yes with 100% certainty. But the doubt is concerning, to me at least, as I think about ensuring our privacy for our clients and ensuring that, hey, you know, after seven years or so, if, if the records are no longer of use and maybe of actual greater concern to keep them, and I go to delete them, are they really deleted? And that doubt is, is concerning. And not having corporate companies, these third parties, uh, be able to provide us with the, those insurances uh, is troubling.
0: Yes. I remember uh, several uh, months ago, well, actually a couple years ago now, um, there was discussion in one of my classes about using the cloud to store dissertation information. And I actually sat down and read the entire contract. You know how they put those contracts up there? They could save all those words as they just said, you know, in a case of dispute, we win, you lose, do you agree, then you can use our service. Um, But but nevertheless, there are pages and pages of, of information to read. I was shocked when I actually read that information of what I was agreeing to if I stored my information on the cloud. It was shocking to me. Um, Most of us don't read that. I mean, I confess I don't. Do you, Vail? Do you read all of those things word for word every time you have to agree to a contract?
1: Uh, No, absolutely I don't. Uh, Who's got the time to do that?
0: Exactly. And so um, I actually sat down and read it, and I was absolutely shocked. And, Sam, I think your concerns are really, really valid. Vail, has the APA looked at this particular issue of this third-party entity out there? Um, and are there is there any effort to say, what are you folks doing with information that should be confidential?
1: Well, certainly we provide resources, resources, um to our members about how to use technology and how to understand um, when you're using technology in your record keeping. For example, um, the record keeping guidelines that Sam alluded to earlier, um, have a, they have a 10-year window and so they're now being revised to incorporate a lot more of the technology kind of aspects including electronic health records and how do you work with that in your system. So I think it will address some of that. Um, we're also in the process right now of updating our HIPAA product to our members and, again, that's going to, that, that's a much-needed update to help educate members on how do you stay HIPAA compliant. And, again, it will touch on, um, I think, more of these sort of technology kinds of things that um, weren't as big of an issue, say, 10, 15 years ago um, when these first products came out. So um, so certainly we do what we can to, to help educate our, our uh, members so that they can be um, safe and secure in the work that they do.
0: Yeah. Um and the other issue about privacy, Sam is not is not just the storage of information, but also um the lack of you know the the ability for people to hack into other people's information. Mm-hmm. Um and that certainly I, I I read a study not too long ago that there was and I'm absolutely butchering these numbers so don't take these numbers at face value, but there was something like uh you know at some secure IRS facility in Utah uh, they monitored it, and there was a high percentage of people who uh, had access that were not even supposed to have access. If the IRS can't maintain total privacy, who can? Um, in other words, anybody can really kind of get into anything if they're motivated. Is that cor- a correct statement, Sam?
2: Well, you know, some of my research has tried to break down the actors, the what they're called sort of the, the threats or the the people that might want to access data. And these can include corporations, governments, state-based actors, um, collectives like groups of hackers, individuals. There are various uh, parties that might be interested in gaining access to records that a psychologist or mental health practitioner keep. And some for obvious reasons, but let's say, say for instance, you're working with a politician or some sort of celebrity people might want to know what that person is talking about in therapy and want want to gain access to those records um, more kind of physically close to uh, a person there might be a situation where someone is in an uh, intimate partner violent uh, relationship and they are, Uh, seeking your care but you're texting them or emailing them in between sessions and uh, is that partner seeing their text messages emails etc and what does that mean for the welfare of your client so there are various sort of threat actors in the picture and I guess my research has tried to break down a few of the digital ones but then there are also these uh, closer to home ones too
0: yeah. Well, and when you mention that, then I also think of you know forensic psychology. I mean, you get these contentious, especially in the areas of domestic violence. You get these very contentious um, uh, court situations with custody and violence. And um, I mean, I I've spoken with enough practitioners to know that oftentimes, you know, uh, litigators will try and get information, private information about their opponents. Uh, medical records and psychology records etc so you know the idea that you know that this stuff might be available to a court not just to the National Enquirer for example but in in actual litigation I mean I would think that that would be a huge issue as well Uh, is that
2: kind of what you're alluding to Sam? I guess that's a piece of it too yeah absolutely Um, you you know I want to acknowledge that As practitioners, we're not technologists. We're not the ones creating the technologies. And and therefore, while we have a lot of responsibility to protect our clients, I think one of the biggest things that we can do as advocates for them is providing thorough informed consent before using any of them. That's, That's the solution, at least as a psychologist or general practitioner that I think of, that we can do today is by providing... Better informed consent and strategizing how you'll use the technology.
0: But we just talked that really, I mean, we can come up with all the documents that we want for informed consent and user uh, contracts, etc. But we're human beings. Are we really, are we really aware? I, I, I've encountered so many people in my life who, until something jumped up and bit them in the behind, really weren't aware that they had agreed to something that would hurt them in the future. Um, I mean, we're just kind of human beings, and we as individuals don't understand the technology any better than, you know, anyone else. So it seems to me that there is kind of embedded danger in this kind of thing, um, whether you're doing your banking online or whether you're doing your therapy online. Um from the standpoint of the APA of course that's a uh, an organization for professionals they but uh, you and you want to provide the therapists with as much um, uh, you know help and and guidance, et cetera. but what about from the standpoint of the patient um, how does the APA look at that component in this, and are they doing anything to try to encourage education or encourage training um, what is the APA uh, involved in
1: that in any way? Uh, in a couple of different ways. One is that through our website, we have what is called Practice Central, which is um, uh, and the Help Center, which offers more consumer-focused type literature. So we have written articles about online therapy that are meant for the consumer, so that they can um, you know really know what kinds of questions to ask and uh, to be thinking about some of these legal and regulatory um, uh, concepts that we've talked about, such as licensure, um, like security and privacy, um, that they might not be thinking about. Cause again, I think you're, to a certain extent, you're right. We just sort of take our privacy for, for granted. We just, because technology has infused itself in our lives in so many ways, we just, I think sometimes forget, um, that we are putting ourselves at a certain amount of risk in order to gain a certain amount of convenience. Um, and in addition, we, like I mentioned earlier, we do get a lot of uh, media inquiries about this topic, and uh, in each one we always really try to make sure that the following points get get made to reporters. Um, although it doesn't always wind up in the final story, of course. Um, But, again, we we really want to instruct the public on the value of the licensure as a protection of the public, ensuring some level of education and training and accountability, Um, making sure that, again, as we talked about earlier about the interjurisdictional practice and those kinds of issues, um, helping people understand um, what a psychologist is and how that differs from the generic kind of term therapist and how often laws... Uh, may not govern the use of the term therapy or therapist, so that in some states, someone with very little training or expertise could actually call themselves a therapist, um... I think on one of the sites they refer to themselves as trained listeners. Um, so these are sorts of some of the things that we're trying to help. I could be a trained listener. I was a mother. <laughs> right. right, exactly. Um so you know, can maybe, you exactly so, how to
0: listen while you're doing your textbook <laughs> in your brain, while you're doing you know <laughs> doesn't necessarily that's not necessarily a good thing, I wouldn't think. <laughs>
1: no, right. And so again it's it's hoping that um that the consumer and the public are better informed, um, more health literate when it comes to the choices that they're making. Um, again, both through providing resources through the website, um, but also, you know, in our kind of more public outfacing kinds of communications.
0: Can we um, go a little, a little uh, ooey, ooey here and talk about? why do we need why are people looking for online is it strictly convenience or does it have something to do with anonymity why are people searching out or seeking and apparently they are or these companies wouldn't be able to make money why are they seeking out this kind of almost anonymous assistance
1: yeah, I think when telepsychology and telehealth in general um, was really coming to the forefront, it was about increasing access to care by removing some of these barriers that people experience. And so in particular, when we're talking, I think, about mental and behavioral health, one of the biggest barriers, of course, is stigma, uh, stigma to receiving help in this area. But you also have things like uh, individuals with disability or mobility issues. We mentioned earlier rural areas where maybe there aren't providers within um, you know, a one to two hour radius of you, um, and then other barriers like transportation. What if you can't find childcare that day, having to take away time from work. Um, so I think that that was really a large part of the impetus to get this out there. But I think you're right. I think for others, um, there's a convenience factor. There's an anonymity factor. Um, there's a sense of flexibility, um, that you can do it anywhere, whenever you want, how you want to do it. Um, and, you know, I think, I think we can rightfully debate whether or not this does resonate with younger generations. But I think overall where you're seeing health care going as a field is more towards incorporating telehealth as a treatment component to the work that we do. And I saw, you know, a, um, a, a TV show, it was like I think maybe 60 Minutes, one of those other news shows where they were having basically health kiosks. In the, empl- in the workplace so that patient, uh, clients and patients can, on their lunch break, go into this kiosk, get a consultation with a doctor, and then go back to work again, as opposed to having to leave the office, travel across town, go through the whole rigmarole. So I, I, so I think there's, there are a lot of reasons why the field is moving this way. Um, I think some of them may be better than others.
0: Well, you know, part this- of me also thinks, and this is a little dark thought that I'm sharing with you, there used to be a sense of import in going to see your doctor, going to see your therapist. This was something that you didn't do just as a whim. It, you didn't do it like, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to stop by, you know, the, the Macy's this weekend and check out new appliances. You, you did it after thought, after consideration, based on a certain level of need. There was import to going and seeking this type of health care. Now it almost seems like it's on, on a whim. Is that just my twisted little brain? Or do you guys see some validity to what I'm saying there? Sam, you you haven't spoken for a few minutes. Am, am I just um, a little odd here?
2: <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know that it's odd, but I, I think that's a question I'd have to think over and mull for a while. I think I've, I've focused on what Vale has already kind of said, which is, that technology has provided a means for greater accessibility and affordability to those that need it most, right? So I think about like the Indian Health Service, where oftentimes there are not psychologists on site. Or for instance, my own firsthand experience working for the VA one year during my training, I was conducting televideo with people in rural parts of Iowa. And so what they were doing was going to a secure VA facility in their own cities and then televideo, uh, televideoing with me in the Iowa City area. That allowed people with great financial and physical burdens to access care. So I'm, you know, it's a really nuanced kind of response for me. I'm not a, a technology uh, pe- pessimist. And I'm not a, an optimist all the time either. I, I think of myself as a pragmatist about this. And so I see great advantage when we're talking about those that would not get care otherwise. If we're talking about it as a means to escape or experientially avoid the in-person, there are pieces of that that make me more hesitant. And at the same point, to, to sort of play the devil's advocate again, there are those with social phobias. It may not come in person, but by being able to meet with somebody digitally over distance therapy, it may allow them to reach out beyond the scope of their home and eventually come in person.
0: Okay. I can see that. Vale, do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I was thinking something very similar, or, you know, take it to ex- extreme if you've got somebody with severe agoraphobia who, you know, as part of their disorder literally cannot leave their house and therefore can have no access to care if you can reach that person where they're at and then help them as part of your treatment plan, I would assume. Get them out of the house, of course. Um but but yeah, I, I just I, I agree. I think I think One of the messages we want to get across is even though there might be a lack of data about some of these different nuances, um, the technology in and of itself isn't bad. It's really how we use it um, and making sure that we're using it in an effective and safe way, and that requires both, as we've talked about, psychologists having a certain knowledge base, but it also requires consumers having a certain knowledge base as well.
0: Great. Well, one of the comments, I think, by one of your colleagues, uh, Avail, Lynn Bufka, who was quoted in the article, said that she brought up an interesting issue that Sam brought up before, but we didn't really explore it. She said in the article, if you're using an online therapy platform and you ask someone if they're suicidal and they say no, is that it? Because that's not when you're doing a traditional practice, is it?
1: Uh, well, sure. So, So, Being able to have an understanding of how you're going to handle emergencies and crises is really important, and um, being able to do a really thorough risk assessment is often easier done, I think, face-to-face. But even saying that, again, I know that in some rural areas, including, for example, um, Kansas, um, they're using video conferencing and sort of, again, I think, some uh, telephone therapy, which also has Uh, good efficacy, to do some of these assessments when someone comes into the ER with a behavioral health crisis and there's no behavioral health specialist in the area. So I I think there are ways that you can do it if you um, follow best practice. So you have uh, a strong history on the person, you know who they are, maybe you have some collateral uh, interviewing that you can do. Um, But when all those pieces are missing and you have an anonymity with somebody who uh, you don't know who's really on the other end of, say, your texting um then yeah that's that becomes a real challenge um and something that certainly concerns me as a psychologist,
0: yeah, Sam. You had talked about the lack of training um you're closer to classroom work than I am um Are you not seeing class uh, uh classes and and education uh for students in online modalities?
2: no. The short answer is no. Um, my my, <laughs> dissertation, my dissertation, which is now complete, was a qualitative research study which interviewed doctoral trainees' experiences around training and education uh, when using technology, uh, specifically for psychotherapy. And universally, when I asked, you know, have you received explicit training in your program about technology, They said no. And it got more nuanced after that because, well, there was like an individual training when I was at the VA around security and privacy, or when I was at my university counseling service, yes, they did a brief training about something, but it wasn't really emphasized. Or, well, there was that one day in ethics when we talked about social media. And so While I think participants were saying, no, we don't get explicit classes, no, we don't have longer-term trainings, no, we don't really revisit it, and no, we don't get practice, yes, there are bits and pieces that people receive along the way. I guess my position after conducting that study and the research that I've done previously is it seems like there's not enough and there's room for improvement.
0: Well, and things happen so quickly. I mean, uh, even two, three years ago, we didn't have the resources um, online and, you know, the technology resources that we have right now. Um, so, and I think, Vale, you pointed that out at the beginning, that that the technology is outstripping and outpacing regulations and guidelines and um, training. So um, APA, of course, being the uh, professional organization for psychologists, um, what kinds of uh, ongoing continuing ed are you guys offering in the, these technological advances?
1: Yeah, so we, uh, we actually have a webinar coming up soon um, talking about telepsychology and also PSYPAC, which uh, Sam referenced earlier. Um, I, I believe that might be um, for just practice organization members. So um, so there's APA and then there's APAPO, or the APA practice organization, which is really um, an additional membership service that is geared towards professional psychologists out in the field. Um, and that is where we offer more, a lot more of the hands-on kinds of things. And so oftentimes some of the resources or the webinars are really only accessible by individuals who participate in the practice organization. And because it's a different um, nonprofit level, it's a C6 instead of a C3, which is a, a complicated thing that I'm sure we could have a whole other podcast about. Um, But basically (laughs) it has to do with your ability to lobby uh, on behalf of the profession. It's really the professional guild. Um, So through the guild we have, um, again, lots of resources for practitioners, including webinars. The guidelines that I referenced earlier um, come through APA. APA is also working on a set of guidelines around social media to help psychologists um, have some um, better guidance around how do you have a social media presence, what can you use it for? how to keep yourself safe and um, secure? So I, again, I think we try to offer lots of different types of resources to stay on top of um, the laws and regulations we continue to do, um, monitor the different laws across the fifty states as it comes as it pertains to telehealth. Um, so those are just some of the things that we're doing.
0: Okay. Great. Sam, um, when will you graduate?
2: Well, if I'm lucky, uh, let's say summer 2018. I have to complete my doctoral internship at uh, Madison, and then uh, I'll be free.
0: Well, wow! I'm looking at summer of 2018, but I'll tell you, every now and then life hits you, and and I, it gets delayed another quarter. So I don't know. I'm I'm looking at summer of next year, so maybe we can go send each other congratulatory cards. Um, let's Absolutely. look at this in our in our time remaining. Um, we only have about 10 minutes, 12 minutes here, but let's look at this strictly from the standpoint of the patient. I'm a patient. I look at these online things, and I'm going, wow. I can afford $37. I can't afford the $137 that's my co-pay after my insurance pays. Um, So there's an appeal there. But what should I do besides looking at what I can afford? What else should I be looking at before or when I choose some sort of online therapy? Sure. I
2: I think... Oh, oh. Sam, go ahead. Well, I was just going to just going to credit Vail with with saying, you know, I think it's really important to to look for licensed professionals when you're considering those kinds of technologies.
0: Okay, well let me interrupt you because we talked a little bit about licensing. I'm in Washington state. Vale's uh, Vail's in Washington DC. You're in Iowa. They have different credentialing. But what difference does it make if Iowa thinks you're good enough? Why shouldn't why should it why should I think differently in Washington if if that's different standards why would that matter to me as a patient
1: well so the doctoral standard doesn't change so psychologist is a a legal term it's a licensed term um so a psychologist uh in each of the states has to have more or less the same level of of training and experience and licensure there's some you know variations from state to state but generally um they all follow a pretty similar model licensing act one that's set by APA, but also set by ASPPB, which is the organization that oversees licensure for psychology. Um, Where you get into trouble is when people start using the terms psychotherapist or therapist. Mm -hmm. Those are really unregulated. Or counselor can be also unregulated. So you want to ask, what's your degree? What's your licensure status? Um, And and what, what is in your scope of practice to do? Those are some of the kind of really health literate kind of things that you would want to ask. I think the other thing is really um, we have a very large general access to care problem in this country, and a lot of that comes down to um, particularly when around mental and behavioral health. Again, it comes back to the stigma of not knowing how to really access care and not knowing who to ask about it. So you mentioned insurance premiums and insurance coverage, um, and I think that's often a first step for people as they go to their insurance company and they ask, you know, who's on your panel, who can I see? And if they can't find somebody, a lot of times it stops there, and so these online programs have really capitalized, I think, on consumers' um, lack of understanding of of how you can still receive quality psychotherapy with a psychologist even if you can't find somebody on your insurance panel. And so that's another aspect of what I really try to help reporters understand is that, you know, it's not just seeing somebody in-network. You have out-of-network options. There are um, free and reduced clinic options that you can find in your community. Um, And so while online may seem inexpensive, you also have to balance that out with what's the quality that I'm getting from this experience and is it really meeting my needs
0: mm-hmm. well and I think don't it would seem to me and Sam you can back me up on this I hope there's different needs at different times in your life for example I remember being young and I was my husband was in medical school and I was our sole support for 7 years And then as he got closer and closer to graduation, suddenly nobody cared about my career, and everybody was asking about him and him and him and him and him, and I know I sound like a little whiny baby, but it really did bother me. It was like, I'm the same person here. My work is still important. Why is nobody asking me anything about me? And I thought, okay, I'm being a whiny baby here, but I need to figure out how to live with this because it's probably not going to change because I'm not a physician. He will probably always have the, quote, unquote, more important career. So I sought out counseling on how I adjust and adapt to that change in my life. Another time, my father committed suicide. I sought counseling for dealing with that. Two different kinds of help that I needed. When we need help, doesn't it matter what kind of help we need when we make the decision of where we're going to get that?
2: Hmm. Sure, I think it does, but I I guess I'd be curious to know where you go with that.
0: Well, I think I'd be way less inclined to try to do some sort of online thing for the suicide issue. Maybe Hmm. it would be effective in the, okay, here's a life event that happens to gazillions of people. It's not exactly a make-or-break situation. It's just one of those things that you have to learn to deal with in life that I might be more readily open to doing some sort of online thing but not the gut-wrenching stuff. Neil, do you mm. see my point and, uh, or is it is it probably um, is it not really that valid?
1: No, no, I absolutely see it, your it point. In fact, we have some I'm just
0: kind of, you know, all by myself here <laughs> and the way oh, I Oh, no, know, and I we have know. we have
1: some research to support this. So so the um some of the self-directed computer programs that I mentioned earlier. So, you, you you, know, it's like a manualized CBT program online, basically. And the research suggests that it works best with those with mild depression or anxiety, so those who maybe are not um, too distressed and that this sort of modality would work well for that. I think, um, you know, these online programs, again, could work well for somebody who just wants to sort of seek out whether they need additional help, just sort of wanting to get a sense of, you know, is this something that's really happening that needs more face-to-face intensive uh, intervention? So I I do think that there's some uh, truth to um, less severe kinds of uh, situations may be more appropriate for online or could be appropriate for online, but there's absolutely situations, I believe, um, that would not be appropriate for online therapy. Um, so individuals that are um, particularly distressed um, may have a suicidal risk or a uh, risk to harm or others. Those are all situations where certainly uh, I would not think that online therapy would be appropriate.
0: How does a consumer decide? How would a consumer decide? Do you have any ideas, Sam? Well, d- oh, go ahead, Vale.
1: Well, I... I uh, sir, I'll go real quick, and then uh, Sam, please jump in. Um, I, you know, I think one of the great things um, that I, I know most of our members do is is they'll do phone consultations, so for free. So I, I always encourage consumers to reach out to psychologists. Um, that you either find as referral sources through maybe your primary care doctor or through your insurance panel or through a friend or a family member, and interview them on the phone. Ask them these questions that we've been talking about. What's their approach to therapy? Where did they get licensed? Where, what's their schooling about? And, and get a sense from them if they think that, um, that, you know, this, is, that this is a good match for you and that, um, that therapy could be beneficial. What do you think,
0: Sam? Sam, what's your advice for yeah. a consumer who's
1: considering online therapy? I, I'm just—I—I
2: I think I'm struck by if I'm a consumer and I don't have these resources, that maybe I start with a Google search and I say I need some help, right? And I search for online therapy, and. I'm going to see ads, right, unless I've got an ad blocker. The the first few things that I'm going to see are ads. And those ads are probably going to be populated with people that can afford to pay pretty significant sums to advertise for a term online therapy. And so they may be some of these for-profit organizations that we've sort of been alluding to um, towards the beginning of the show. And so I'm going to be very, uh, I guess, wary or I'm going to acknowledge that there are some marketing practices that these companies may be engaging in um, that suggest authority, that suggest privacy, confidentiality, and security, and appeal to the need and or sometimes desperation for services that people will be clicking through. So it's hard to have the, the right answers. I think Vale has really caught to it, which is about, Literacy, psychological literacy, medical literacy, and helping educate the general public about what services exist and where you should go to seek those out. But if you are simply starting from a Google search, as many, many people do these days, it's going to be a little bit of a minefield. And I guess my biggest piece of advice would be the same way that you would evaluate your next car, you've got to be a critical consumer. What are the reviews? What is the background? What's the background like? What do people say about this organization or these people that are representing themselves online? And even further, trying to think about, um, okay, well, what what do I do if I feel like I'm in a crisis situation? Um, what resources exist beyond this?
1: And, and to piggyback on that, I think if you can find the information, what we also – seem to be seeing is that when these um, online tools are developed by psychologists or others with uh, mental and behavioral health backgrounds that you generally have better products and so again while that's hard sometimes to be able to determine um, that could be another avenue or um, to help consumers um, kind of weed out the good from the bad well and I, I, think I just I, I,
0: all... I... go ahead
2: Seth. Yeah, I just wanted to echo that, which is, is that's a huge piece of the puzzle. And I'd love to see more of that. I'd love to see more psychologists and licensed practitioners out there talking about their services, um, because that's part of the problem, I think, is that there's a real Silicon Valley focus of let's make it cool and technologically savvy. There are technologists at the heart of these coders and computer scientists, and they're really great at what they do but they don't necessarily have the psychological background or the ethical background about, well, what does this mean if we do that?
0: Exactly. And Sam, that was exactly what I was going to wrap up with. It seems to me that uh, sometimes when we're looking at online things, we forget that these things have been created by technology people. doesn't necessarily mean that they are psychology people. And so we do have to be critical consumers, all of us, and we have to really look at this information. We have to look at uh, whether or not uh, it all open mirrors or whether there's actually uh, a value in the um, organization, in the individuals. And I don't think uh, anything can replace a good fit between two individuals. And I remain skeptical uh, about how we can establish a good fit when all you're doing is having a little thumbs texting back and forth. I do, however, agree with you, Vale, what you opened up with It was with, with the research, saying that it has been shown to be effective when there has been an established relationship. So uh, good and bad, and I think it remains open for us to be critical consumers and critical practitioners. Thank you very much, Vale. Thank you very much, Sam, for being with us to discuss this, this pretty important topic, because I don't think this is going to go away you, anytime soon. So thank you for joining us. I close the show with a quote. Today I'm actually bringing the quote from the article from Monitor on Psychology about online, and and, uh, it was from Megan Jones, who's also a uh, uh, doctoral psychologist. And she says, Even more encouraging is that when digital interventions are positive, effective experiences for patients, they may go on to seek face-to-face therapy. And so I think it can work both ways. Thank you so much, Vale Wright, for being with us. Sam Lundgarden, thank you. Join us next week on Three Women, Three Ways.